Part of the motivation for wanting to explore a potential basis for a cloud platform was that our infrastructure wasn't unified at the time. We had maybe four or five different ways that we were running our applications. The team did a experimental cloud platform. It was a success. And within a couple of years, all of Shopify was running on Kubernetes. And I really had just the most amazing experience getting to follow that journey from the beginning. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for open source projects with a focus on CNCF sandbox, incubating, and graduated projects. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroot, we publish the Kubelist newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable software vendors such as HashiCorp, Puppet, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or you would like to suggest a project, find us on Twitter at ReadKubeList. Finally, sign up for the Kubeless newsletter and read previous issues at kubeless.com. On this episode, Benji and I are joined by Katrina Vary from Shopify. Katrina starts out by telling us about her non-traditional background and how she got interested in infrastructure. She then goes on to explain how she got involved in the SIG CLI and customized projects. We spend a good amount of time talking about customize, and Katrina is able to share a lot of details about how Shopify manages Kubernetes and infrastructure. This is a fun conversation about configuration management and really just learning a lot from a team that does it well. Enjoy. Hi there. As you just heard, we have Katrina Virion with us today. Katrina is currently a senior staff software developer and production engineer at Shopify. She's also a project owner and maintainer of customize and a SIG CLI co-chair and tech lead. We're going to have a fun and probably pretty technical conversation today. Um, before we start, of course, Benji's here too. Benji, how's it going? It's going well. Excited to talk to Katrina. There's a lot to, lot to, a lot of questions to ask. For sure. All right, like right, let's, let's dive right in here. Katrina, we'd love for you just to start out by telling us a little bit about you and how you ended up working in the Kubernetes ecosystem. Hi, uh, I'm really happy to be here. So my background is maybe a little non-traditional. I actually studied translation in university and uh, worked for the government of Canada for about five years in the translation and editing space. And uh, as much as I enjoyed that career, I decided it it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So at that point, I started exploring what other options might make sense for me and uh, stumbled on a Rails bootcamp. (laughs) So I actually went to a Rails bootcamp, discovered a love of programming while in that program, And from there, managed to uh, get a position at Shopify as a developer advocate intern. In that position, I worked on the Shopify App Store, which is uh, the third-party ecosystem of apps that plug into Shopify for merchants to use. And I got a lot of really great mentorship as part of that opportunity that really let me solidify my developer skills. From there, I moved on to product work at Shopify, worked on the orders team and the storefront editor in, in particular. And I had a mentor during that time because having this non-traditional background, I I had a lot of gaps in my knowledge that, you know, filling them would really help me with my growth as, as a software developer. And my mentor was really helping me with that. And one of the things that he was emphasizing uh, around, let's say, beginning of 2016 was uh, just infrastructure knowledge. 
So one day he pointed out to me that Hack Days were coming up and that there are a few infrastructure-related projects as part of that Hack Days, Hack Days being an opportunity for developers at Shopify to spend a few days experimenting on, on random projects that don't have anything to do with their normal day-to-day work. Um, so anyway, my mentor was suggesting to me like, hey, why don't you take this opportunity to join an infrastructure-related project and learn something new? I thought, wow, that sounds, that sounds like a great idea. So I went and I checked out the projects. And the one that stood out to me was basically, let's try this new Kubernetes thing. Like, let's check it out, see, see how it works, see if we can run our, our most important app on it, how that goes for us. I didn't know what Kubernetes was. I had no idea. But it sounded, sounded interesting. Uh, so I, I joined that project. I helped out in the ways that I could and learned a lot. But by and large, I would say I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was, it was a good learning experience for me and sort of introduced me to what would be an incredibly important concept for my career. Because uh, later in that year, folks with way more experience and knowledge than me who were on that team decided that uh, Kubernetes was actually very promising and we should give it a more official try with a, a small team and try to build out an experiment of what a cloud platform based on Kubernetes could look like. And to my utter surprise, I was invited to join that team, which was just an incredible opportunity. And I was very intimidated by it because, like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. And I felt very uh, a huge amount of imposter syndrome uh, around working on anything infrastructure related whatsoever. But um, I thought, you know, I just couldn't pass up this opportunity to learn and to grow in this, this area that was really interesting to me. So I joined the team, and uh, and I never looked back. Essentially, so the team uh, did a, a experimental cloud platform. It was a success, and uh, within a couple of years, all of Shopify was running on Kubernetes. And I really uh, had just the most amazing experience getting to follow that that journey from the beginning. That's great. I, I like. Um, it's interesting. You actually one one comment there. You said at the beginning the hack day. You said, "Can we run our most important app on this new Kubernetes platform that's coming out?" Why start with the most important app? Why not start with like something that's like lower risk? Did you have like do you have any thoughts about like why you, you took that approach? Yeah, so I, I wasn't my decision at all. That's not that's not my good practice. Um, but I do think it's a very good idea and a practice that we have in production and engineering at Shopify to run towards the risk. That's literally the expression that we use. There's going to be risks associated with any project, and the more you know about them, the more that you tackle them up front and discover how much they're going to be a problem and whether or not that problem is tractable, the better that you're going to be in the long run. So instead of hiding them away for later, we tackle them head on right from the start. So. Uh, you know the the idea there in this particular case was if we're going to be able to use Kubernetes as the common basis for all of our applications, that's going to need to include uh, Shopify core, as we call it, uh, which is the most difficult thing for any platform to handle of all the things that we have. So let's let's find out upfront whether or not that one's going to work. I love that. That's really a great thing to to encourage an engineering team to be how to approach problems. Um, I have a question for you. Were you guys already containerized at that point in 2016, or was this a bigger lift? Um, if, if you can share that, what, what, what did the infrastructure look like before Kubernetes? Yeah, um, part of the motivation for wanting to explore a potential basis for a cloud platform was that our infrastructure wasn't unified at the time. We had several, maybe four or five different ways that we were running our applications. But the Shopify core application that I was talking about um, being the first one that we tackled that one actually was containerized. Uh, for that one, we were very early adopters of Docker. And um, 
that made it easier to do that experiment, right? Because the, the containerization piece was already in place. We used a variety of other technologies to run our other applications, which uh, was a kind of a problem <laughs> for us because the lessons that we learned in building for the app that really stretched us in terms of scale and technology, they weren't transferable to these other applications. So we're kind of having to reinvent the wheel and have multiple tools and techniques for maintaining these various things. And... Um, yeah, not being able to transfer lessons that we've already learned from the big app to the other ones as they scaled. So that was a big motivation in wanting to create a flat platform and finding a common technology that could be the basis for apps of any scale. I mean, one thing that I know is that I'm pretty sure that Shopify is probably one of the biggest users, if not the biggest user of Kubernetes. I mean, maybe Google uh, and Amazon are maybe bigger users, but you guys are, are pretty pretty massive users. What does your architecture high level look like today? Hmm. Yeah, we certainly are very big users. I, I don't know how to find out uh, exactly where we rank, but we certainly have a huge amount of clusters and, and also apps that we run on those clusters. When we first started building the platform, we had sort of a vision that we would have a smaller number of really large clusters with massive multi-tenancy and co-location of various kinds of workloads. The original sort of experimental version of the platform mostly just made a distinction based on uh, quality of service, which actually did work out for us um, pretty well and is still a feature to some extent of the uh, architecture that we have today, where the experimental apps don't live alongside of most business critical ones. But our experience over time taught us that it actually can work better to have a smaller number of clusters that are more uniform in terms of the type of thing that they run. So we no longer co-locate stateless and stateful workloads, and we actually are moving towards treating clusters as disposable as much as possible. And instead of investing in tooling to uh, make upgrades seamless, we invest in tooling to make applications resilient to being transferred to another cluster. So that same tooling is then able to be used both when we want to do a cluster upgrade because that actually looks like spinning up a new one on the new version and moving the applications over to it, the same way as we can apply that tooling to a failover scenario. So we end up with these really robust resiliency tools for applications that are applicable in both scenarios. As a result of this re-architecture, we now have a really massive fleet of clusters. Uh, the number is actually more than 400, uh, which is pretty crazy. So another thing that we've invested in is tooling for managing those clusters at, as a fleet. So yeah, 400 clusters is a lot. Are those all like, you said you're like really focused on trying to have like some uniformity. Is that inside the cluster or like, do you really have like a platform team that says, oh great, you know, you need another cluster or another dozen clusters. Like we can, we, like it's very easy for us to create additional clusters. Uh, it is really easy for us to create additional clusters for sure. That's something that wasn't always the case and we invested heavily in a few years ago to, to make that possible. Right now, we're uh, still improving our notion of having sets of clusters that uh, follow a uniform topology that we've defined for them so that it's not 400 different clusters, it's 400 clusters divided into a, a smaller number of well-defined shapes. So in terms of like what I meant by collocating certain types of workloads and separating others is that we might have uh, one of those shapes be application clusters, and that would run the stateless component specifically of the applications you know, that the end user, users of our platform want to run. 
And then uh, I, I should mention, we run everything on Kubernetes. Didn't emphasize that enough earlier. We, we run everything from stateless to stateful uh, services that are uh, the components of our platform, all on that common technology. So uh, some of the other clusters that we have are dedicated to a specific uh, shape of stateful system. For example, uh, we might have one dedicated to MySQL or Redis or Memcache, LexSearch, Kafka, and so on, all those other services that we run. And then we have some understanding of what's in that cluster and what it takes to move it to the new one for the purposes of upgrades. That also gives us, um, you know, all those, those aren't owned by the application teams. The application teams just, um, they end up using one of the application clusters based on the opinionated platform tooling that we provide. And the clusters such as the ones that run our stateful systems are owned by the stateful uh, services teams that uh, provide those systems as a service to our internal customers. So if I'm on the application team and I want to use Kafka service, am I connecting across cluster? Or how does that? That's I want to understand how that that works, or or any other service, any type of database service or whatever. Just because you obviously have these clusters are isolated from each other to some degree, um, how do you bridge that? How 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 as an application developer do I get a service that maybe is is in a different shaped cluster? Right. Um, so we have heavily uh, made use of the pattern of custom resources as a way to declaratively request infrastructure. And the way that that often works today is that the application owner would have a custom resource in their cluster uh, alongside their application, their stateless application resources that would request either the creation or of or just access to uh, a stateful system that might exist elsewhere. And then the controller that's backing that custom resource is going to take a look at that and say, oh, like they need access to the MySQL, they need access to Redis. And it's going to set up a specially configured proxy to allow uh, the app in question to connect to that service wherever it may live. And uh, that obviously includes... Uh, validating that the app is supposed to be able to access that service and that it owns it and then setting up all of the uh, secure configuration required to get it to connect wherever that that might live. Cool. We're talking about Shopify and how you're currently running infrastructure and the path to get there. Like, I want to definitely come back to that, but another interesting topic I want to transition to for a second or for maybe maybe more than a second um, <laughs> is you're a project owner and a maintainer of Customize. Like, I'd love to hear more about Customize. Like, can you tell us, like, like what's the inspiration for Customize? Maybe for folks who aren't super familiar with it, like even just like a high-level overview of what Customize does. Sure. Uh, Customize is a configuration management tool that uh, you can use straight from Cube Control. It's embedded in Cube Control as Cube Control Customize. And the purpose is really to satisfy the basic configuration management needs of managing variants that you might have for your application. Most folks who are deploying to Kubernetes uh, have various shapes of their application that they might need to manage, and Customize is designed to fill that need. It makes sense. I mean, I look, I, I've used Customize. I remember like the first time it came out, it was like a new take on a really hard problem, right? Like uh, there's other tools in the CNCF ecosystem that solve like that attempt to solve this problem using different ways. One that comes to mind is Helm. There's I think there's like a proliferation of like config management tools these days, and Customize has a very opinionated, specific solution for it. De definitely. And like Customize specifically is motivated by the desire to provide a very Kubernetes-native declarative 
configuration management workflow for uh, end users of Kubernetes to take advantage of. It was actually motivated, from what I understand, I was not around in the project at the time, but uh, from what I understand, it was motivated by identifying a shortcoming of Kube Control that it had no declarative solution for this really common problem of needing to make simple transformations ahead of deploying your workloads to Kubernetes. Like it had Kube Control patch, Kube Control label, all these imperative commands for making those transformations, but the best practice is to have completely declarative workflow from start to finish when it comes to configuration management. And Kube Control didn't give our users any way to approach that, that, uh, that problem. When you think about adding that on top of Kube Control, that makes total sense. At the time that Customize came out, you know, I think if I remember the timelines right, it was like Helm existed for sure. Some of the other things that are available here in 2022 maybe were uh, not, not available yet. Like there's definitely some stuff there. So how do you, how do you think about like, the way that Customize solves the problem of giving the users the ability to do that, like last mile configuration versus the way Helm does it. Like, what are the, if you can kind of talk a little bit about the strengths of the way Customize does it, and maybe like, like Helm still exists and Helm's continued to grow in, in, in popularity just like Customize has. And so, like, Helm clearly is solving a problem that, that folks have too. Can you share a little bit of your thoughts as to like where each of the project strengths are? Yeah, um, the configuration management space is really rich and diverse. Uh, it was before Customize existed, and it still is today, and I don't really see that changing, to be honest. Uh, there are a lot of different tools in the space that come with different opinions and that will work better in different situations than others. And there's really not going to be a silver bullet, and Customize isn't trying to be one. I don't think any great tool is going to be built to address every possible use case, um, because great tools tend to have strong opinions uh, about one way to approach a problem. I think Customize's approach is pretty novel at the time. Helm takes a templating-based approach, which is fairly common uh, across the space, and Customize specifically doesn't do that. If you want to learn about the philosophy behind Customize, which I think is actually pretty interesting, but I'm biased on that topic, there is a document called Declarative Application Management in Kubernetes, which was written by Brian Grant in uh, 2017, uh, Brian Grant from Google. And that document really is an overview of the configuration management space that is just super insightful into the uh, possible approaches and the trade-offs that come with them. So um, when I was working on configuration management internally at Shopify, I discovered this document and was just super inspired by it. And I think it can be useful for folks who maintain configuration tools or folks who are just trying to make a decision about what's best for their organization to take a look at uh, something like that, which is a very thorough overview to sort of get a good understanding of of what the possibilities are and and the trade-offs they come with. Yep. We'll include a link to that document in the show notes because it is really like it is it is absolutely worth reading if you're like trying to like like figure out how to like make your application configurable or deploy an application to Kubernetes. Yeah. And one thing I would say about the difference between customize and helm is that they really have very different scopes. So they have in common that they both have a configuration management solution, but customize is solely focused on configuration management, and it is specifically focused on being a solution that is incredibly uh, Kubernetes native and only exposes the, or deliberately exposes the Kubernetes APIs themselves uh, in a purely declarative and configuration as data approach. Whereas 
Helm is a lot more than that. It has a, a template-based configuration management built in, but it also is a full-fledged package manager that helps you define, distribute, and release your, your packages. And that is just completely out of scope for Customize. It's, it's not something that's ever been a part of, of the Customize project or anything that, that we're interested in, in doing. So that said, you can use these tools together as well. You can use post render hooks and Helm to uh, invoke customize, or you can do the other way around where you start off with a Helm chart as, as your starting point. And then you import that into customize using its Helm feature to then make all of your transformations, create your variants, whatever it is that you need to do using customize's declarative style. Do you like that? Have you seen a bunch of setups like that? What, what would you suggest if I was just getting started with customize? It depends on what what you have to begin with. If you are starting with a Helm chart, certainly that is a very approachable way to get started. And to uh, I like customize is really focused on making it easy to make these uh, common transformations. So if that's exactly what you need to do, then plugging your Helm chart into customize and just defining those simple transformations you need to make is a really great way to go. Ultimately, if you end up doing something more uh, complex with customize, you might want to render out that chart into your directory and uh, set up a, a more customized oriented uh, system overall. If you're just getting started and you don't have any configuration defined to begin with, or you just have a plain set of Kubernetes resources, I would suggest starting with customize directly, which is very simple to do because it's really oriented around those resources. All you need to do is, is drop them into a directory at a customization.yaml uh, beside them that imports them, and then define those uh, declarative transformations that you want to make. Yeah, so really, if I'm starting from scratch, customize, in your opinion, not biased at all, of course, <laughs> is, the, <laughs> is, the way to, is the way to begin. But yeah, okay, no, that's, that's super interesting, and it, it's, there's a lot of nuance here. And I think that uh, I'm very excited to, to read through that doc, actually. Um, so I'm going to be looking at the show notes for sure. Yeah, it's about five years old now, so it doesn't have all of the tools that exist today. And some other ones are also inspired by it. There's another one by Google called Kept that was also uh, derived from this similar philosophy. But its uh, principles that it outlines there are certainly still pretty comprehensive and very informative. Totally. What? So okay. So at Shipyard, we're we're big users of Helm. I'm pretty sure that at Replicated, they're big users of Customize. Not that we're trying to start a turf war here. <laughs> but tell me more about this Helm feature. You kind of just—I had no idea. You just mentioned a Helm feature uh, that I could use, and I, I want to understand that one more. What, what, what was that? Yeah. So most of the features in Customize you could frame as being either generating or transforming configuration. And one of the features that we have is based on generating configuration with the Helm chart as a starting point. So there is a Helm field that you can specify where you point us to your chart and some of the parameters needed to render it. And Customize will, will render that out. It's actually shelling out to the, the Helm command that you have installed on, on your machine, on Helm v3. And it just uses that to get that raw configuration set to use as the starting point for the transformations that you're going to make with Customize. That said, because we are relying on an external executable, there are some, some trade-offs to keep in mind with this, which is that you need to make that available. And uh, you're going to need to specify an, an additional uh, set of flags to tell us that, yes, you really want us to invoke this specific executable and you believe it's safe and it's actually Helm and you know for the security purposes, which makes it a little less convenient to use. 
And because of that, we actually have a plan that is documented an issue on the customized repo for moving the customized integration into the new extensions format called Karam Functions, which is another uh, sub-project that I lead within 6CLI. And that the idea there is that you can encapsulate it in a, a container and then we can provide the Helm binary that gets run and you can just approve the fact that we want to run Helm. So that's uh, a little ways out still, but that's kind of the direction we're headed with it. And then we can provide a more complete Helm feature set because we'll be building something that is uh, even more focused on providing that integration and making it complete. It's cool. Yeah. Well, like the KRM stuff looks looks interesting. I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. Wait, hold on. This is Mark. This is the most important question that you know I like to ask. Oh. Katrina, cube cuddle or cube control? <laughs> I say it three different ways, and I think most of the seeing CLI maintainers now uh, also just kind of say whatever comes to mind in the moment. As somebody asked us this at KubeCon actually during our session, there is an old release note that I think says cube control. Uh, it says one thing or another that is not the same thing as what is implied by our new logo from a few years ago, which shows a cuddlefish, strongly implying that it's cube cuddle. Uh, the right answer is cube cuddle. I just want everyone <laughs> to know that. Just based on it, it's, it's, it sounds so nice. The right answer. <laughs> the right answer. I, you know I'm an advocate. on, on the Listeners of the podcast know that I am on a mission to make sure it is cube cuddle. We are going to win this fight. So, Katrina, the right answer is cube cuddle, just so you know. Oh, okay. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> Wait, tell me more about this KRM stuff. I, I don't know anything about this. What, what is this? Yeah. Um, so if you want to get more details, there's some talks available from uh, both the maintainer session at this past KubeCon and uh, Jeff Reagan, the uh, previous maintainer of Customize, uh, and I spoke about... Uh, how to use them in customize specifically in depth at the North America KubeCon from last year. Karam functions is a format essentially for defining declarative extensions for configuration management tools. Well, what does that mean? So Karam stands for Kubernetes resource model. And that means that we want to build pieces of code that are going to affect configuration management transformations based on a declarative state expressed as a Kubernetes resource. So in a way, uh, Customize itself follows this exact model because customization is a Kubernetes resource and Customize the tool takes that Kubernetes resource as its declarative instructions for what it needs to produce. So the Karam function specification describes how you, as someone who wants to extend a configuration management like Customize, uh, it's also supported by Kept, can adhere to the same principles and build an extension that really integrates really nicely into these tools. Did that make sense? That, that does make sense. So it doesn't depend on the Kubernetes API server. It's a way to distribute and, and, and execute that. But like the interesting part, too, is you know, as far as the security model goes and a few other kind of side effects you get and benefits really are like the KRM functions, I guess, is that what you call them, are packaged as containers? Yeah, um, the recommended distribution mechanism is containers. It's not the only one that's supported. Uh, you can build a KRM function that is implemented uh, with an executable. We recognize that there are some situations such as very CI-related uh, contexts where you actually cannot run a container, uh, which puts a serious limitation on us if we were to restrict the format to that exclusively. So uh, from a security standpoint, certainly container is the best option if, if that's a possibility. What we're working on is 
a concept called catalog that would enable you to, as a user of Karam Functions extensions, so a customized user that wants to incorporate extensions, to tell customize that you want to run these specific ones and to be able to list out what those are supposed to look like. So what container can run them or what executable can run them and whether or not you as the end user prefer one or the other. That way, with the uh, it's a full metadata format, so you are able to, as the person who is authoring these for publication, and then as the end user who wants to consume them, specify you know exact checksums that you expect the binary to have, so that customize can validate that for you before running it. Then, when you're defining your customization and you're saying, "I want to run," you know my company generator, you can just say, "Kind my company generator." And customize can look up which one that is, see that you've approved it in your catalog that you've included, and then just run it seamlessly for you. Wow. That's a bit of a tangent. No, 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 that, that's great. So <laughs> what, what, is, what is the timeline on KRM functions and all that stuff? Uh, when, when do you think that the implementation might be there? Or the spec is finished, at least? The spec is pretty solid at this point. It's actually pretty simple when it comes down to it. The spec says that you have to use the Kubernetes resource model to describe the intended functionality. And then your program has to accept a list uh, in a, a certain format on standard in and emit that same format on standard out so that these uh, KRM functions are composable. But it's very easy to comply with. Basically, what it looks like from the perspective of the person writing the function is you take in an object called a resource list that has a field for the list of resources that you are supposed to uh, transform or add to, and then a field with that function configuration, which is the declarative KRM object that the end user is expressing their intent with, um, so telling you what to generate or what transformation to make. Then you do whatever it is you want to do in your program to make that happen, and you spit out the same resource list format on the other end with the new list of items that has the transformations or generations or even validations applied to it. Um, so the, the the format, I think, is pretty solid. The plan for around catalog to make this easier to use in the tools that adopt Karam functions as the format for their extensions, those are still more work in progress. We have KEPs that describe the plan for them, but we need more folks to join us to uh, work on the implementation and help give us feedback to make sure that what we graduate in terms of the extensions is something that is going to work for the real-world use cases that folks have. Cool. And I, th I think that, you know, we don't want to spend the whole time talking about KRM functions. I mean, they're super interesting, and I, I've kind of been reading through the, the spec. I found it in the, in the customized repo here, as you've been explaining it. And we'll, we'll definitely include a link. I think one thing that can help a little bit, it is a pretty advanced topic that you're clearly building to solve a specific problem. Can you give like an example maybe of where KRM functions would make a current process a lot easier to do? Two examples that we uh, have recommended folks build extensions for are features that we don't want to add to customized core, but that fill a use case that folks have in their organization. So say they make, need to make a really specific transformation that uh, involves knowing something about the way that that organization structures its resources. That's not something that we can accept in, in Customize in particular because we only make structured transformations. We never use any mechanism like templating or regex to identify unstructured locations to edit. 
So uh, when you have that knowledge, you can build that into your own transformer and have your end users give you the information that you need to do that transformation accurately and do it then behind the scenes however you would like. Another example is that uh, some folks want customized to emit resources in a specific order for deploy readiness reasons, for review reasons, whatever it may be. Um, and it doesn't correspond to one of the two ordering strategies that customized supports. Well, in that case, you can implement a transformer that you add at the end of the list that just takes in the list, reorders it into that order that you wanted, and emits it so that the final order that customized emits is exactly the one you want. Another use case for KRM functions that really resonates with me in particular is the one where you have an organization with strong opinions on what configuration should look like or a need to produce abstractions for um, your end users to declare a more specific or a more organization-specific desired state. So, for example, maybe you have a standard app shape that all your uh, customers use to get started. And it takes five different parameters that are specific to your organization. Well, you can make a generator as a KRM function that takes in those five parameters and gives them that starting point that they can then use with the standard customized primitives to take it from there to customize it to their own needs. And in essence, Shopify actually does take this strategy. Our configuration management system uh, predates KRM functions, but it was inspired by the declarative application management in Kubernetes document and bears a lot of similarities to the way that KRM functions are structured and built. In fact, we used K the KML library, a very, very early version of it in part as part of our implementation. And our configuration generation tool, although we do use it standalone, is compatible as a customized uh, generator. And that was intentionally so, and I think proves out uh, that point that this is a really powerful mechanism uh, for folks who really like Customize's approach, but have more organizational bespoke needs to address. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, I mean, we kind of got a little ahead of ourselves, but this is a great place to go back. How did you get involved in Customize, especially being at Shopify? Can you tell us just a little bit how, how kind of OSS works there? And, and how you got to get involved and customize itself and all that stuff. Shopify is a really open source friendly company. Uh, we really believe in investing in the open source software that we depend on. And we have a long history of doing so in particular for Ruby, uh, Rails, and React. Historically, we haven't been as involved in Kubernetes, but we're really excited to be doing more in that space as well uh, these days. I would say that personally, I was always excited about the idea of being involved, but all those years in the past, I never, I never really knew how to get started, um, never found the, the right approach. And uh, while I was working on configuration management, building the, the product um, to make configuration management tractable for our app platform, I went to a KubeCon and had the privilege of being introduced to uh, Phil Whitrock, who was one of the tech leads of SIG CLI at the time and also leads of the customized project in particular. And I was super excited about configuration management at the time, right? I'd been working on this project for a while. We were sort of getting ready to ship it. I had all of these ideas about how, how it can work. And Phil was also really excited to chat about that topic since it was uh, close to his heart as well. So um, that's how I started to find my place in the community by being able to connect to 
somebody who is working on the same sort of problems that I was working on in my day to day. And for some reason, I don't know why it had never occurred to me that SIG CLI was the SIG that was working on the same stuff that I was. I, I had always thought it was maybe SIG apps. I'd kind of gone to their meetings, but never really found a, a common ground. I gave a demo there once, but that was about it. And when I found SIG CLI through these conversations, I was just like, wow, why, why didn't I realize this sooner? Um, and from there, I started just making a few little contributions. And eventually, I ended up having the opportunity. Uh, we, we didn't touch on this, but I joined Apple briefly for about a year and a half. And part of my role there was working on SIG CLI stuff as well. I've had very continuity of, of subject matter in the last years of my career here. And while I was there, uh, I also did a lot of work with with Phil, and was uh, able to even further deepen my my involvement with with Six CLI and with Customize in particular. You know, one thing that that's interesting, like going back to that declarative application management white paper that you mentioned um, that Brian Grant wrote. You know, back in 2017 when he wrote it, you know, you're you're working to solve these problems at Shopify. Lots of different people are. Google is. Um, Brian works at Google. The the one sentence, like you know, it's a really great paper. But the one sentence that really struck me was, he he talked about how you know, look, we've been working on this for years at Google. We've tried a lot of stuff. Like we still don't really think there's a good solution yet. So it kind of like gives you confidence that like you're not missing something obvious. Like everybody's trying to solve this problem. Configuration management is just hard in general. Mm-hmm. And so you're 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 motivated. Like you're solving this problem. You realize like like there are a lot of folks out there trying to solve this problem. Um, so you start to work on it. How did you get involved enough to become like you know now you're a project owner of Customize. You know you went from you know working on the project, you know making PRs into it. I assume, um, and then eventually said like look I'm gonna I'm gonna really focus a lot of my time. I'm gonna take some responsibilities here and, and really drive this project forward. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I started getting involved uh, by contributing features here and there, making fixes, talking to the maintainers about the work that I was doing in space. And what really got me most deeply involved was actually the Karam functions angle and sort of what I was talking about regarding the power of these to address so many different use cases. And you can even use them independently like Shopify does, where we have something that could be used as a Karam function extension for customize, but in practice, we use it independently. So these things are, it's a way to build these composable units of configuration tooling that can serve such a wide variety of use cases while adhering to these great principles outlined in declarative application management. So I was, I was really excited about that concept and contributed a cap for a resource called Composition. Um, it's still not merged yet. There's an implementation up in a PR, but this is something that is intended to make these if you will, third-party resources defined as extensions for customize to be more first-class citizens of customize and be mixed in alongside the built-in generators and transformers to make, uh, in particular, variant management when you're using both built-ins and external generators and transformers uh, a better experience. So that was my first really major contribution. And to do that effectively, I had to really deepen my knowledge of uh, customize as a tool and the implementation. So how is how is the customized community going now? Now fast forward a few years and, and how's it going? How many people are involved? What do you need help with? What, what you know, we have an audience here, so what what are you looking for? How how can we be supportive of the customized project? We have a very small team right now. 
I maintain customize with uh, Natasha Sarkar from Google. And uh, we have another person, Anna, who has just begun to join us recently, which we're really excited about. So welcome, Anna. We have such a wide user base that we really need more folks than than just three of us um, working on the project. So if you are a big fan of customize, if you rely on it, and are interested in helping us make the tool better for the long term, we would really like folks like you to step up and join, I guess, the maintainer, uh, the contributor ladder to help us maintain the software and have the bandwidth really to do more of the exciting plans that we have on our roadmap. So wait, by the way, so Shopify is using Customize today in production, correct? No. No. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, One day, once KRM is in place, they might be. Probably not, honestly. One of the things that Customize isn't particularly intended to be is for a tool for opinionated platforms like the one that Shopify has. So our configuration management tool is inspired by the same thing. It works on the same principles. It looks just like a KRM extension and perhaps we'll use it from within Customize as part of it for some advanced use case in the future. But where these two things come together is, is really at that philosophical level and in terms of the foundational tooling that's used to build them. So the thing that we have internally, it's also built on KYAML, and it is also a Kubernetes resource model uh, declarative approach. I mean, that that speaks to a pretty pretty awesome Shopify open source thing there that you're you're, you're working on this this much, and uh, and they're not even using it. That that's really cool. Yeah, and of course, I don't work on Customize exclusively. I am involved in SIG CLI more generally. And the goal of my team is really to, to connect Shopify to the upstream community in ways that make sense for us. And this is one case where Shopify has a ton of expertise in this space. We have so much experience doing configuration management strategies at scale. And uh, the community has a serious need for folks who have that experience to step up and maintain these tools to help them make, make them sustainable for the long term. So this is a place that it makes sense for us to help out. And that is really part of our mission is to help contribute to the sustainability of the Kubernetes project in ways that make sense for us and our expertise. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm sure it would be great if you were able to say, like, yeah, I can fix this thing, customize and make our sh- internal Shopify systems work better. But like, you, you, so it kind of forces you to kind of bring everything up one level higher where you're really thinking about configuration management, not the implementation of customize to solve Shopify's problem. Yes, although those things do certainly come together. And even in the concrete implementation of the KML library, which increasingly like customize is a wrapper around KML. And KML is, I haven't really explained it properly yet. It's it's a, it's a basically a toolkit for manipulating YAML that specifically is expressing Kubernetes resources. It's this really great tool. And we do a lot of client-side work at Shopify and the KML tool is really helpful tool in, to have in our tool belt for that. And we can help evolve that one based on our, our experience, which also helps customize because customize is built entirely around it. Is KML just a, a Go library, a Go package, or is it um, a, a totally separate? Yeah, it's a Go package that uh, currently still lives inside of the customized repository. Okay. And the KRM function strategy, we didn't build uh, our tool out of the KML functions framework, which is a sub-package of the KML, the KML tool, just because it didn't exist yet. If we were to restart today, building what we have would be so much easier. 
oh my gosh, it would be so much easier. And if I had been in the community working on this stuff at the time that I built the internal solution, it would have been even better. Honestly, there's so much benefit to be had by being connected to other folks in the industry that are doing the same work as you and that bring new ideas and best practices. And together, I mean, that's the great thing about community, right? Together, we build something better than what anyone would have built separately. So just being connected to the other folks in this domain and being able to be really familiar with and contribute to these tools that are very popular in helping other folks across the industry has inherent benefits for us as well. Yeah, it's a hard problem though. Like, right, you you solve this hard problem, and then the you know, as Shopify or you know anybody goes and solves a hard problem, and then years later, there's open source tooling that you're like, oh wow, that would just be like I could have solved this problem so much quicker. Exactly what you just described, but like you then have to weigh: is it worth rewriting it and getting the benefits and the maturity of this versus like you know everything else that I could be doing? And so you know, I, I don't know, like if there is a future of Shopify to be able to like you know re- start to migrate some stuff into the KEMO library or not, or in you know like how how your team thinks about that. Yeah, that's a really good point, right? Uh, the configuration system management is working pretty well, so the chances that we'll turn around tomorrow and and change it up are are not very high, honestly. But the system that we built was for a very specific use case, and it's not the only one that we have internally. There's still some unsolved problems in the configurations management space that certainly I think KML functions as they exist today with the whole toolkit that's available behind them could be a really good solution for, and that is more likely to happen by far. We um, wanted to be really, really opinionated with the solution that we provided to our app developers, both to help guide them and to Uh, help them avoid common mistakes that we uh, were seeing in the previous system that we had that this CARAM-oriented system replaced. Uh, So we actually intentionally didn't address the full spectrum of possibilities that existed at the time because we wanted to provide the best tool possible for the majority of our users on our platform. That tool is not open source, correct? The internal Shopify one? No, it isn't because it's really built that specifically for the organization. I don't think it would really make sense to open source. Right. What you might see analogously in the future is that uh, as part of the CARAM functions project, there is uh, a CARAM functions registry that is still just getting stood up. There's nothing really of note in there yet. But that is a place where folks who have functions that are more generic can contribute visibly to the community, both as examples of what other folks can do, and to literally share these pieces of functionality across companies. So, okay, this is really cool. I feel like I'm understanding a lot more about how Shopify operates, both from a strategic perspective with open source, but also uh, internally how you guys do stuff. Um, I actually have a few examples, uh, real examples of us having encountered exactly the sort of situation you described a a moment ago where we have an internal implementation of something and then a community standard emerges and we're sort of faced with this question like do we adopt it is it worth the investment and in a couple cases we have made that decision and we have not only switched over to the open source solution but started maintaining it so yeah, I could go into that a little bit if if you're interested yeah that that would actually be like super super good because it's like I think there's a lot of like really pragmatic and pra- like in practical like decisions that like as an engineer you're you're faced with like as a software developer you're faced with every day when you're thinking about like you see an open source project you're like oh that's probably better so like I'd love to hear some of the, that story. Yeah, one one example is the case of our use of open telemetry. So someone on our observability team, Francis Bokshani, who uh, yeah leads our observability team here, was really into the idea of 
tracing uh, ahead of the curve. He got started uh, at a time when there was no clear leader, and he uh, actually went with an internal implementation that we rolled out to production. And we had some good experiences with it, but we also sort of concluded that we didn't really want to be maintaining our own implementation ourselves. So started kind of looking out in the community what was emerging as, as the solution to go with. At the time that uh, he did that, it was open census that seemed to potentially be the solution, but the Ruby implementation, which is what we needed, was not really maintained. So we're kind of thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe we can step up and maintain that. And right when we were making that decision, that's when open telemetry itself emerged. And it didn't have a Ruby implementation at all. So Francis, he said, oh, well, this is a great opportunity. Like we have all this experience from building the internal implementation and the community has this need for a Ruby implementation of this new standard. So this is something that the Shopify is in a really good position to help out by providing. And that will also lead us to be in this better position for the long-term future where we're using the community standard solution and being able to leverage the community documentations for how this works and really be in line with what everyone else in the industry is doing. So yeah, um, our observability team stepped up to the challenge there and were able to found the Ruby open telemetry implementation based on the experience gained from running Shopify's internal tracing product in production so that we're starting from a, a really solid place with, with that and we still maintain that to this day. Another example is that... We used to use uh, a different uh, Ingress provider, but today we use Ingress Nginx. And how that happened was uh, we were having some issues with our original provider in terms of the, the feature set that it offered. And uh, we we're kind of looking around the community again for, for what uh, what we should perhaps adopt instead and, and identified an Ingress Nginx as the likely candidate. But there was a big problem. <laughs> we deploy at a really, really high rate. Our core application is deployed dozens of times a day and it has tons and tons of replicas that it needs to roll every time we do that, which means that there is a ton of endpoint churn in those clusters. And at the time, Ingress Nginx did not handle that very well. Without getting into the technical details too much, um, we would end up in a situation where our Ingress Nginx pods would be... Uh, proliferating the number of workers they're running and eventually get um killed. So what we really needed was to introduce dynamic endpoint re reconciliation to be able to handle that endpoint churn in, in our clusters. Now, uh, Elvin Effendi uh, from our writing team was uh, looking at this problem and he realized that we had a lot of experience with Lua and Nginx from running uh, Nginx ourselves in our data centers and our previous architecture, and that could be applied to, to solve this problem in the community. So we proposed a solution, and uh, it ended up working out really well. And uh, with that in place, we were able to make the switch over to Ingress Nginx, which, as a fun fact, we ended up doing a lot earlier than originally planned because our original Ingress provider ended up having a major outage, and Elvin had to sort of make the decision like, oh, I, we're ready to go, but we weren't planning on launching now. Well, let's just flip the switch. Uh, it's a full outage. Let's flip, flip the switch. And uh, we did, and we never rolled back. Ingress and GenX rollout uh, saved the day. Okay, so we're coming up on time, but I have a few other questions about Shopify and how it works over there. So, like, how does Shopify share, like, the management work? Like, do the dev teams and the app owners have kubectl access 
should application teams own their own clusters? Do they, do they do that at Shopify? Like, what are your thoughts on? You guys have a really, really extensive Kubernetes setup over there, and I feel like there's a lot of lessons that you've learned over the years. So, how do you guys look at at, at how and who owns what and who manages what with all these clusters? Shopify's approach in general is to have a really opinionated technical stack, and that goes throughout the stack, really, from everything from uh, our choice of languages, like we really are a Ruby, Ruby and Rails heavy shop, and uh, for the front-end technology, we use React, uh, right through to using Kubernetes universally on the back-end, and notably, for this case, the integration between those two. So our app developers, they use Kubernetes through our production platform, which is essentially a platform-as-a-service product that production engineering builds. We have kind of an interesting balance that we strike, though, because production in the production engineering model, we build the platform and we build resiliency features into it that help our applications uh, scale and, and recover from outages and all of those important characteristics. But we don't actually run the applications themselves on behalf of the app owners. The app owners own their applications from start to finish all the way through shipping them to production and making sure they work well and um it's the app owners themselves that are on call for it. So to that end, we do give them a fair amount of control within their namespace. So typically an individual application will have a namespace for say their production instance. And within that namespace, they're able to configure the resources as they see fit. The configuration management solution that we provide them gives them a really opinionated start that guides them in the right direction and highly restricts the ways that they can do the configuration to make sure that it ends up being deterministic and that we get repeatable deploys and all those other best practices and configuration management space baked into uh, what what's possible. But at the same time, they are able to modify arbitrary fields, kind of like the way you can do with customize by writing patches. And that means that if they are, uh, they might start with us as an experiment, but then they grow to need something more bespoke, um, and they they really need to tailor their infrastructure to their use case, that is something that they're able to do with our platform. That said, we we are still very opinionated in other ways as well. In terms of giving folks production access, we have a developer portal that they can use to get insight into their Kubernetes resources. And we use kind of a progressive enhancement model where you don't need to learn anything about Kubernetes up front, but if you need to dive into what's happening, you really can. Um, we don't, we're not hiding Kubernetes from you. And in that sense, our approach is somewhat similar to Customize, where when we need to teach you something, we're going to teach you the real concept so that you can really understand what's going on under the hood and so that all the public resources available on what you're seeing are going to apply to you. There's no uh, translation layer in there, per se. Well, it sounds like you guys literally are kind of doing the dream, or what I always think is the idealized dream of, of a good setup. Sounds really cool. Um, I'm sticking with Shipyard, but I but you're you're tempting me. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think we've made a lot of good decisions over the years, and of course, like some of these weren't there to begin with. That configuration management stuff, in particular, obviously near and dear to my heart. The thing that we had there in the first place, oh, it was it was a nightmare. It was not a good idea. It was template based, and oh <laughs> yeah, but you guys are killing it. It's just crazy how like literally you're 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 describing what you guys do, and I'm like, uh, are you talking about like a hypothetical, or you actually got this all working? That's crazy. Does it work well? Does what you describe work well? Is there a lot of velocity? Do you see the is that is it helping? Is it are application people happy? What's next internally? Like where 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 are the challenges that you're, you you want to actually make that process better? 
Yeah, I mean, it is working very well for us. We we have gotten a lot of velocity, as you said. I, I think having the strong opinions uh, as a core part of, of our model and really guiding our developers to do the right thing by default and then be able to unlock uh, power when they, when they need it, That's that's been a really effective model for uh, helping such a large number of teams scale such a large variety of applications. But there are new challenges every day, really. And we're constantly working to keep up with the community and make sure we're following the best practices. We are uh, very old users of Kubernetes, so we kind of touched on this earlier. Uh, some of the solutions that we built predate the uh, more established practices. Uh, so we are constantly revisiting what we should be doing to make sure that we're getting the full benefits of uh, the solutions that have emerged. Right now, one of the problems that we're addressing is that we made it really easy to create clusters because of the philosophy of uh, trying to make them more uh, on the uh, restricted scope and, and disposable side. But now we have a ton of clusters and it is really challenging to ma manage a huge global fleet of clusters. So we have some solutions that we're working on there, but that work is far from done. And that's a space where we're super interested in collaborating with other folks in, in the industry who are solving similar problems. As a company, we really like to collaborate technically with others and, and talk about our various solutions. You know, I had I had two quick follow-up questions. One is you mentioned you guys have 400 clusters. Are those all living in GKE, AKS, EKS? Do you have your own data centers? Or are they spread around? I would assume that they're definitely multi-region, uh, but are you in different clouds? And then the other question was, how many SRE and DevOps people, folks, do you have at Shopify maintaining all this awesomeness? Yeah, um, we are GKE exclusive. Uh, when we first started the project, when I was talking about the experiment that we did to see if this would work for us, one of the things we did in the early days was run Kubernetes ourselves in our own data center as part of the validation that this is a technology that we're comfortable with and that we really want to invest in. Uh, but these days we're all GKE, so all 400 plus of those are, are GKE clusters. And yes, they are absolutely around the globe. Uh, how many DevOps and uh, SRE folks do you have? So Shopify uses a production engineering model where we have more of a, a platform team approach. So I guess the answer to that question would be like roughly how many folks do we have working in production engineering, which does include a handful of SREs for the platform itself. And uh, that, that number depends on how you count uh, exactly, but it's somewhere around 300. That sounds, that sounds about right for what you just described. Another really interesting space that we work in is, is stateful systems on Kubernetes. That's one of the decisions that was most difficult to make in the beginning, right? When we were talking about how we're going to consolidate everything into this platform, super easy to say once we've decided that Kubernetes is a good technology choice that we're going to run all of our stateless stuff on there. But stateful, especially back when we were making this decision, that was far from obvious that that was the right approach. And we decided to make a big bet on it and go all in uh, with all of our stateful systems as well. And uh, we think that's actually worked out really well for us, but it's certainly a challenging space, and we have a lot of folks who are really excited to be um, pushing Stateful and Kubernetes forward and uh, solving the hard problems that that still exist with uh, doing that seamlessly. All right, wonderful. This is this has been super informative, and I really do feel like you've been describing the goal state for most of our listeners. I know it's the goal state for me. And obviously, uh, I think about platform and platform teams a whole lot. I know Mark does as well. But this is super, super informative. 
One last question before we let you go. Is there any other cool open source projects that Shopify is a big part of or sponsoring or whatever that, that we should we should know about? We can put in the show notes. We haven't talked about it too much, but just anything else that we should be looking at that you that you guys are uh, are, are contributing. We have contributed a couple of our own open source tools, notably one called Crane that's for deploys a number of years ago. That's uh, always been a part of our stack and uh, another one called Cube Audit that our infrastructure security team built. We also do occasional contributions to the many different open source projects that we take advantage of from the CNCF landscape, um, Thanos, Prometheus, Falco, Voucher. Actually, we are maintainers of Voucher as well, which is a component for, of the Grafeus system. I don't think that's CNCF, but it's also uh, maintained by our infrastructure security team. Nice. Well, it sounds like this is uh, a really cool place to work. Uh, not to be too much of a commercial for Shopify, but uh, it just—it sounds really cool. I'm just—I'm just kind of blown away with some of the the, the factoids. Um, yeah, and obviously, I want to highlight uh, how. The, the strong points of what we built so far, but there's still a lot of work left to do. And we're a company that is really heavily investing in Kubernetes, as you can tell. And we have lots of openings to work on these various uh, spaces. And there, there's still plenty of hard work and challenging problems left to solve. Wonderful. Katrina, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Uh, I reserve the right to ask you to come back in a year to tell us what's different, because <laughs> I'm excited to see uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what you guys will have built by then, but it'll be, uh, it'll be super interesting. But really appreciate you coming on and, and excited to see uh, where Customize goes. And I will personally be checking out the KRM stuff and keeping a close eye on that. So that was something I learned today. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, head over to kubelist.com. I'm Mark Campbell, CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com. My co-host is Benji DeGroote, CEO at Shipyard, where they enable isolated ephemeral environments on every code change for companies of all sizes. Check them out at shipyard.build. This show is brought to you by HeavyBit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And finally, don't forget to sign up for the Kublist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kublist.com. <laughs>